This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intricasso. With me for my 295th interview, 11 years ago to the date I started this podcast, is retired Harvard instructor, author, risk and risk perception consultant, David Ropeek, to discuss his recent book, Curing Cancer Phobia, How Risk, Fear, and Worry Mislead Us, recently published by Johns Hopkins. Mr. Ropeek, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Mr. Ropeek's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. Briefly on background, there are over 10,000 known human diseases and symptoms of a disease may have numerous possible explanations. In addition, a diagnostic test can frequently be less informative than observing a suspected disease clinical course over time. Because of the complexities involved in accurately diagnosing a life-threatening disease in a specific individual, at the population level, diagnostic errors represent a significant public health problem likely to affect most, if not everyone, in their lifetime. Nevertheless, despite the progress made in treating cancer, as Ropeek writes in his intro, two-thirds of nearly 200 types of cancer are either treatable as a chronic disease or entirely curable. Cancer today remains the emperor of nosophobias, defined for the listener as a persistent irrational fear of contracting a life-threatening disease, that in turn leads to overscreening, overdiagnosis, or false positives, overtreatment, potentially harmful side effects and death, and excessive healthcare budgeting and wasteful spending. As one reviewer of the book wrote, Ropeek details how the gravity force of cancer phobia warps risk perception, leading to personal and societal harms and legislative misdirection. Dedicated podcast listeners will recall a related conversation I had four years ago this Saturday with Paul Eppner, the former CEO of the Society to Improve Diagnosis in Medicine. So with that as background, David, um, since I know I, I noted this specifically in the intro, so I do want to ask you about this, and that is at the beginning of the book or in your introduction, um, you state that this discussion is at the population level. Please please explain for listeners so we're clear about that. Yeah, actually the book starts with an apology. Right, exactly. Uh, yes, the yes. first few words are, I apologize to anybody who might be offended at me saying that you are suggesting that you might be too afraid of cancer. So people will read this as individuals, right? They see the word cancer and breast cancer and prostate cancer and whatnot, and, and whether they buy organic food or not, the things that I discuss later, in their own terms. And they should, and that's fine. And they make their own choices about whether to screen and how to handle a diagnosis of a, of a low-risk or overdiagnosed cancer as individuals. And I totally respect that. But my book deals with the population as a whole, as a policy. And if one looks at things from the 30,000-foot view, right. not from the individual view, one can see the harms that I'm talking about. That's the framing that I hope people will understand. Okay, thank you. Let me uh, throw in one other primer question uh, here, which I, I think deserves uh, to be asked specifically. You also note uh, 
in the intro, and I'm quoting here, finding cancer as early as possible is not a panacea. Uh, we'll, we'll get to this, but let's get that out, out up front. What, what do you mean by that? Or why is that? It turns out, it turns out that finding a lot of cancers early leads people to do more treatment to themselves than they actually need because they're cancers. They have cancer in the name, but won't hurt them. Not all cancers kill. So the belief that we have grown up with that finding all cancers early is always the best in those cases, and they're common, is in fact not the best, and it leads to more harm than the disease ever would have. So we have to be measured now with uh, that general belief. Generally, medically, of course, it is easier to treat a cancer the earlier it's found, but some of them that are found early... um, would never have gone on to cause any harm, but with cancer in the name, scare people into treatments they don't need. So finding them early is not the best. In all circumstances, correct. Yes. So thank you for that. And as you know, that's probably the most repeated comment you hear, which is uh, timely diagnosis is important because the utmost importance is is diagnosing as certain as as soon as possible. You also note here. Um, that, and I'm quoting, non-progressive cancers are up to 30% are not uh, programmed to grow, harm, and kill. All right, one other sort of background. The book is based on the work by the USPSTF. Um, so let's, for the reader, what what is the USPSTF and what do they do? So the United States Preventive Services Task Force is a group of 16, I think it's 16, 16 yes. uh, medical experts from various fields who look at major questions facing public health, uh, medical side of public health, um, and try to uh, figure out which ones are important to give the public guidance on. And the idea is preventing, preventive services task force. So if they can give guidance, they hope to um, uh, prevent harm rather than treat harm. So that's their mindset. And what they do is they meet every once in a while and they talk things over and they assign researchers who are far more expert in the specific field they want researched to look up questions like what would be a good age span? What is the most beneficial age span to recommend for people for mammography, let's say, or do we want to recommend or not recommend another cancer screening test like PSA for prostate cancer, a prostate-specific antigen? So the USPSTF is a neutral group. Uh, by the way, if, if, uh, if the group decides to look into an issue where any member on the group has expertise uh, or professional interest in that field, they discount themselves. They disqualify themselves from that whole discussion. So it's a really pretty neutral group, and they're the ones, when you hear the government recommends that you get cancer screening started at age what and ending at age what, they are the group that generates those government recommendations. Now, it's important to note here that I rely on them in the book for the following reason. There are other recommendations by other august medical groups Mm -hmm. about when one should start what kind of cancer screening. But the radiologists who make money from doing cancer screenings have, one could fairly say, a vested interest in more screening rather than less. And the American Society of Clinical Oncologists who treat cancer and care about people and want to help them 
have a vested interest. So even the American Cancer Society, which makes recommendations as well, among other groups, has a, a, a vested perspective, okay? Uh, a more, um, um, they're an advocacy group, okay? And that's great, and they're advocating on behalf of our health, and that's great, but that will also color what they suggest to the public. So the USTSTF to me, as a former journalist, and by the way, I have no conflicts of interest here. I wasn't paid by anybody to do this book. I was a, an independent journalist uh, researching all this. The USPSTF seemed to have the most neutral uh, and thorough scientific basis for the recommendations they put out. Okay, thank you again. And they grade their recommendations. Obviously, an A grade is a stronger uh, recommendation than a B grade. And I'll also say that the USPSTF is, uh, you could look at their work. Uh, their programming is managed by the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, HRQ, which is a operational division within HHS. So uh, listeners can look at USPSTF uh, materials online via AHRQ. Um, let's, let's get into uh, more specifics still. So the book discusses five major cancers. There's a chapter on each, and so at some length, in alphabetical order, breast, colorectal, lung, prostate, and thyroid. And since you noted uh, to do this in a more time-efficient, let's stay with uh, breast cancer as an example. Um, there's a lot of reasons for this. Breast, you know, there, you know, breast cancer is highly prevalent. Um, it, it, it has a high mortality rate amongst many cancers. Um, and uh, USPSTF recommendations relative to breast cancer mammography screening has been some, so it's somewhat controversial, so it is a good example. So let's start with, uh, you're well aware that a year ago this past May, uh, USPSTF revised its mammography screening recommendations. So let's get into this again, uh, breast cancer mammography screening as, as an example. Uh, what did USPSTF do and why? Well, on that specific change, as I read the thinking behind the change, which I think remains a recommendation because it's going through the bureaucratic process and so forth. And my book, by the way, because it had to be printed in the past and so forth, says that the data in it are current as of May 2023. Right. That's when they ruled, so as of yes. May 20, right. As of May 2023, the USPSTF was still recommending that women not start mammography until age 50. Mm -hmm. Many, many, many other groups for years had been pressing them to start it at age 40. And they've been pressing them in a lot of different ways, noting, for example, that there's a slight discriminatory effect on people of color in that age 50 recommendation. Remember, the USPSTF is looking at the entire population as a whole mm -hmm. and making a recommendation on everybody, not just one slice of everybody. So they were pressing them on race, uh, on that issue, um, and they were also pressing them on um, the rising incidence of breast cancer in people under 50, in women, mostly women, of course, under 50. So those were the principal justifications that I read in the USPSTF's uh, recommendation to go to start at age 40. And one of the things that I would note that is particularly interesting is 
the USPSTF, unlike many other medical groups that make these recommendations, measures both the benefits of the screening and the potential harms. They're much more thorough at looking at the balance than the other groups. The other groups sometimes don't include the potential harm at all. They look at only the potential benefit of the screening. Well, that's not a fully informed public when you're having guidance that's only looking at half the question that I want answered, which is, will it help me or will it hurt me, mm -hmm. right? Okay, so one of the things the USPSDF has always said in their breast cancer screening recommendations is it's based on what is, for that age group, more likely to do good than harm. And they had always found that the age group below age 50 is more likely to be harmed by screening than helped. And now let's go into what harm means because people don't think of screening as harming people. But that's a profound part of my book. So first, screening and mammography is the worst form of cancer screening for this leads to a lot of false positives. That first result where you get the call that says you may have cancer, but we don't know, so come back. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. There's lots and lots and lots of research that that does long-term psychosocial harm. This is, a, this is a harm from screening that is regularly dismissed as inconsequential by the fans of screening, the advocates of screening, and radiologists and, and oncologists. They believe in screening. Um, so they downplay the, the effects of false positives, but they're significant. And in, in, um, a significant minority of people have longstanding increased anxiety, worry, worry about cancer for the rest of their lives as a result of a false positive. And um, I pulled out some statistics for our conversation. Um, per year, I'm going to try and find them while we talk, the number of false positives from mammography is, is staggering. I don't have the stats right in front of me. Oh, I'm sorry. Here it is. Um, in 2018, 5 million American women had false positives from mammography. Now, they go in for their second test. And the second test is a, a screen and possibly a screen and a biopsy. Now we're into what is called a medical cascade. Okay? Mm -hmm. So if the second screen or the biopsy itself um, leads to a diagnosis of cancer, one in five of those diagnoses, roughly 60,000 women a year as of 2018, are diagnosed with a type of cancer that is ductal carcinoma in situ. In situ is the critical part of that. It's in the milk duct of the breast, but it's only in situ. It's only just in that one place. It hasn't spread. Mm -hmm. So they look at those cells in the microscope, and they compare them to the charts that they use to say these cells look irregular, irregularly shaped, irregularly packed. There are a bunch of criteria, which, by the way, come from 1856 and Robert Verkow. They're still using the same basic criteria, although now they look more thoroughly and have genetic things to look at, right? And if those cells meet the criteria of cancer, the patient receives a diagnosis, you have ductal carcinoma in situ. You have breast cancer. And then the doctor will probably say, most responsible doctors will probably say, 
you have low or medium or high grade DCIS, they can kind of grade them based on what the cells look like. And especially for the low and the medium grade, you have effectively, you have stage zero cancer, and it's almost a pre-cancer, and we can just watchfully wait this if you want, but the official recommendation is surgery. And out of the 60,000 women a year, roughly in the United States, who get that diagnosis, 58,000 of them choose surgery. Now, let's back out. Ductal carcinoma in C2 won't kill you. <laughs> and I'm not a doctor, but that's what all the doctors have told me. It can change and go on to become something that will kill you. And the higher grades have a 20 to 30% chance of that. But the lower grades practically don't. It is, it is effectively considered an overdiagnosed cancer that would not cause harm to the patient in their lifetime. So some significant portion of those 58,000 women have low and medium grade DCIS and go on to have surgery to remove the breast cancer because of the fear of what that means that would never harm them. And the surgery does. The surgery kills a quarter of 1% of the women, 20 to 30 a year, women who have DCAS and surgery that they don't need to have are killed by the surgery. The cancer never would have killed them. Four to 5,000 women a year go on to suffer lifelong post-mastectomy pain syndrome from all the cutting of a mastectomy. So some women have lumpectomies. Uh, some have mastectomies. Some, a growing number, have double mastectomies, which they are told have absolutely no beneficial effect on recurrence or future cancer risk, but they're afraid. That's what my book's about. They're afraid. So they do more harm to themselves out of that fear than the disease would have. I'm sorry I ran on long at the mouth of that, but that's, this is really the key. A lot of people say screen, 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 but screening can trigger harm. So now when we get back to the USPSTF, it was very interesting to me to read that one of the reasons that they're lowering the recommendation is to age 40 is because there's an increasing incidence of discovery of breast cancer at age 40. But a significant percentage of that is women who have started early, who haven't listened to the USPSTF recommendation to start at 50 and have started earlier and are showing up, but they're showing up with DCIS. So we're, we're finding more of cancers that won't kill us. So let's start to look more broadly, which means we're going to find even more. It seems to discount the whole argument the USPSTF uses of weighing the harms and the benefits. Great. I'm glad you went to DCIS because that's where I wanted to go. And I'll, I'll cite your number in your book at exactly page 101. Uh, per the comment you just made, that the number of diagnosed DCIS cases jumped from 11 per 100,000 women per year in 1975 to an astounding 91 per 100,000 women in 2002. So you 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 find what you look essentially, for. David. Essentially, David, DCIS is so small that you can't feel it with a hand palpation of the breast you know, self-exam or a doctor's exam with the hand palpation of the breast. It's too small. And, and you would think, find cancer early, there's that belief again, mm -hmm. that that's good. So effectively, more advanced mammography has created this disease. Right. It was, it was less than 5% 
fewer than that, I think, I don't remember my number, of all breast cancers before mammography. Now it's one in five. Now it's 20%. We're finding them earlier. And that seems good, but screening has taught us with mammography and the other cancers that I write about, not all cancers kill. That is embedded in our belief, but it's no longer true. And so the fear that all cancers kill and, oh, my God, I have breast cancer and I have to cut it out is an old, outdated fear that needs to catch up to what we've learned partly through mammography so that we can make healthier choices for ourselves and, by the way, more efficient choices for the healthcare system because all of those surgeries to take care of cancers that never would hurt anybody cost money. Right. The over-treatment in, in my book, I talk about these five cancers, the, what I call over-treatment of the surgical and radiation treatments, of cancers that never would hurt anybody. So clinically unnecessary treatment is the way doctors refer to it. Cost the U.S. healthcare system $5.3 billion a year. That's 3% of all the money spent on all cancer care in America is spent treating people who clinically don't need it, but they're afraid of the disease. And, and in my book, I call them fearectomies. Right. It's a lumpectomy. It's a mastectomy. It's a prostatectomy. It's a thyroidectomy. Yeah, it removes those glands, but in essence, those glands never would have hurt them. So what they're trying to cut out of themselves is the fear of having a cancer in them. It's a fearectomy, and they cost billions of dollars to the system. Right, and you talk about uh, uh, even more radical double mastectomies, etc. Um, right, I, I was noting, or in my notes, looking at the word fearectomy when you said it, I thought interesting as well, you cite a 2015 study, three in 100 died 20 years later, uh, those diagnosed with DCIS, three in 100 died 20 years later, the same odds for mortality for women, whether they had the cancer or not. Right, right, right. This disease, this disease, many forms of it, not all forms of it, and again, I'm not a doctor, the, the high-grade, there's low and medium and high-grade DCIS, and the high-grade has a, more of a tendency to possibly go on and be uh, metastasized and become more threatening. Um, so it's not all DCIS, but most DCIS does not do that. In fact, some of it regresses and goes away. The body's own system somehow takes care of it. Some of them disappear. Mm -hmm. So the, 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 the treat or don't treat question is largely driven by our old fears of what cancer means and not by what we've come to know about the nature of this particular disease. Right. And you, uh, again, from your book, not all cancers are the same and catching all cancers is not a panacea. And then you cite the world famous Cochrane Review, quote unquote, declines in breast cancer mortality were not caused by screening, but by better treatment. That's uh, their conclusion. Um, so, yes, this is this is a complicated subject. And I'm glad we can at least say that there's more to this than you know, early diagnosis is somehow uh, the, the the panacea here. Um, 
And thank you for the opportunity to make that very important central point. The point of my book is not whether people should or shouldn't screen or whether people should or shouldn't buy organic food, which many people buy because they think it will protect them from the pesticides and cancer, but there's no science to support that protection, so that's money wasted. That's up to people to choose for themselves, but they should have their eyes open when they do. That's what this book hopes to accomplish. Right, exactly, exactly. Uh, thank you again. Let's let's you you touched upon some other related. Um, I did want to get to the costs, the economics here, and I made note uh, relative to budgeting and spending. Um, you know, the bottom line, all this is this is just another subcategory uh, explaining the fact that about twenty five percent of healthcare delivery doesn't improve anybody's health status. Uh, this is is one example of that. Um, you mentioned uh, you have a whole chapter on environmental factors uh, that lend to this fear, uh, environmental agents, you term them, uh, including the one that I always have to smile when I see noted is fluoridated water. Um, but you get into pesticides, you mentioned glyphosate. Uh, and then, of course, there's been a lot of discussion over the years about technology, uh, use of cell phones, power lines, etc. Could you... Uh, summarize your discussion in in the environment agent chapter. As best I can. So in my first career, I was an environmental reporter for a television station in Boston. So I covered environmental health issues extensively. And over time, I came to see that the fears that people had and environmental advocates were kind of... um, sounding the alarm about, didn't match when I would go to the experts and say, what's the actual risk, what they would say. And they weren't experts from companies or anything. They were just, you know, public health experts. So I did two things. First, when I joined Harvard, I joined a center that studied risk, risk analysis. They studied it quantitatively. And I learned a lot more about what goes into the actual determination of whether something's risky and how risky is it. And things like dose matter, right? One aspirin's good for you, a hundred's bad for you. Those sorts of details matter a lot to whether something's dangerous or not. So when you hear the word chemicals, you go, ah, but you never hear the dose of that chemical. So I looked into all of that, and it has framed my thinking that environmentalism has oversold the threat of environmental carcinogens significantly. Now, there's a good reason for that. Some of these substances are really bad for us. Thank you, environmentalism. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. But environmentalism actually started in the 1950s. And I will try to be brief about this, but there's a very interesting history to it. And I I start with the book with the history of how we came to be afraid of cancer only in the last hundred years. And one of those reasons was that in the 1950s, atomic bombs had been tested in the atmosphere and people were worried about the radioactivity in the fallout. It turns out, and we didn't know this then, but we do now, that that radioactivity at the doses to which we would be exposed would be de minimis in terms of actual harm. The dose is too small. The dose is way, way, way too small. But we didn't know that then. So the ban the bomb movement started, and that was really to stop atmospheric testing of nuclear weapons. And that grew into, oh my God, the chemicals that we're spraying around are as bad as the fallout from radioactive weapons. That's exactly the thesis of Silent Spring from Rachel Carson, mm-hmm. the mother the mother book of environmentalism. 
she says it all over the place. She says exactly that. We're inspired to fear. I'm helping you be as worried about, concerned about, aware of the risk of chemicals being spread around indiscriminately as we are about radiation. Well, the problem is our fears are rooted back then. So those fears got promoted by the environmental movement. Thank you, because some of these substances are really bad for us. But it has become such a mantra now that things like dose and how are we exposed. Uh, if you breathe it in, it's really bad for you. If you get it on your skin, it isn't. Details that matter, <laughs> really basic details that matter, they leave out. So if it's got a chemical name, the word chemicals itself has been stigmatized to sound like industrial chemicals, right? I mean, we're made of chemicals and all of that. So chemicals, the word radiation, the word superfund, all of these words have become fear trigger words. And as a result, survey after survey finds that the majority of the public thinks the majority of cancers are caused by things out there, out there. Now, the reality of cancer is that it is principally a disease of aging. That's why, for example, it wasn't common 100 years ago. We didn't live long enough. To get cancer. It was only 100 years ago that our lifespans got into the 50s and 60s, which is where three-quarters to to 80% of cancers begin and and, and occur and are, are found. Okay. So we didn't live long enough. Now we live long enough, and the mutations can build up in a single strand of DNA that gives the cell that that DNA is in the chance to grow without controls. Cancer is cell growth run amok, in addition, uh, that can spread from one organ elsewhere, metastasis, which is what kills most people from cancer, not the cancer itself. So cancer is largely a a disease of aging. You see that in all the statistics of who gets cancer and who dies of cancer and so forth. And most of the cancer biologists agree that roughly uh, Bert Vogelstein et al. did a paper in, uh, I forget, 10 years ago, that estimated like two-thirds of cancers are these aging things exacerbated by our lifestyle and what we eat and whether we're fat and whether we have inflammation in our health system making those mutations in our DNA worse. Okay, And about one-third, maybe, tops, is from environmental stuff. Well, that's significantly different than what most people believe. So when somebody comes to my town and says, we don't want cell phone radiation in our town, that word radiation scares the bejesus out of people because they have this mistaken belief with those ancient environmental roots that the word radiation, without all the details, is a boogeyman word. That when we hear, you're going to fluoridate our water, Fluoride, I've heard that causes cancer. There's the cancer word, right, C right. word. And oh my God, right? So there are a lot of the nuclear power, nuclear energy emits no greenhouse gases. It also emits no particulate pollution, which kills 100,000, 110,000 Americans a year. The little stuff, the little particles mm-hmm. you can't, can't see, they're too fine, and they get in your lungs and they screw up your cardiovascular system. But fear of nuclear power has raised the cost of building those plants because they have to have super-duper-duper-duper-duper-duper safety systems way beyond any other, even more threatening industrial plants, the ones that handle oil and flammables and all of that, like the one that went off in Bhopal and killed 
a quarter of a million people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the cost of building nuclear power means that it can't compete against other forms of energy, and the atmosphere is getting worse. You see, all these harms come from these deep, deep, and old and outdated fears, and environmentalism is, is, is one whole area where this is true. Sorry, you asked for a summary. That was a summary. The chapter's even longer than that. I apologize. No, no, that's fine. Uh, thank you. You were talking about PM 2.5, fine particulate matter uh, from fossil fuel combustion. You're right. Um, I do want to just make a quick note, and then I want to get to you. You have a chapter on, in fact, in your recommendations for a policy forum late in the volume, you talk about eliminating the C word, but just the, the relative to the budget effects, I did find you had a table, and I'll just note this. That you looked at, and, and I was, I was reminded of when I read this, you looked at NIH spending by disease condition. You probably remember Jerry Anderson and colleagues wrote a paper in, in the New England Journal in 99 that looked at, uh, NIH funding or the correlation between, um, institute funding at NIH and the prevalence of disease conditions. And I actually reread the, uh, result paragraph uh, in that 99 study. In fact, I'll just title it, the relationship between funding by the NIH and the burden of disease result, there is no relationship between the amount of NIH funding and the incident prevalence or number of hospital days attributed to each condition or disease. Um, and that is demonstrated, you have a table in the book where you note that uh, for the disease conditions that you study, for example, uh, and let me see if I can find this here quickly. There are annually 43 uh, versus 41,000 pancreatic versus breast cancer deaths, so more pancreatic deaths than breast cancer deaths. However, uh, this institute that studies pancreatic cancer is funded at 172 million. However, cancer deaths, which are 2,000 lower, uh, not statistically much fewer, but certainly no more, uh, while uh, the Institute for Pancreatic is funded at 172 uh, NCI is funded at $545 billion. Here's a bigger number. Here's a, here's a bigger, broader number. The National Cancer Institute, with that, within the National Institute right. of Health, is by far the biggest yes. member, component, of the National Institutes of Health. It spends roughly three times more researching cancer and working on cancer prevention than the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute spends doing the same sort of work for heart disease. Heart disease kills 10% more of us. Yeah, NHLBI, which is the second largest institute, is is swamped by uh, NCI as it relates to funding. Yes, absolutely. Exactly, exactly. And, and to get back to our previous discussion, environmental stuff, our government spends hundreds of billions of dollars to reduce the risk of environmental carcinogens to us, infinitely less to reduce the risk of particulate pollution to us. And if one calculates out of the entire cancer death toll every year, what one third of that might be, taking the high end of how many cancers are environmental, you end up with about the same number of people dead as you have from particulates, okay? So the death tolls from particulates and environmental carcinogens are the same. We spend infinitely more 
on environmental carcinogen control than we spend on particulate pollution control. So this all raises the general point that I'm glad you've brought up. A fair question can be asked. If we spent not out of fear, but out of statistical relevance to what threatens us the most, would more people be saved with the same money? And I think it's a fair thing to suggest, yeah, probably more would be saved. Yeah, the logic dictates that that would be the outcome. Yes, yes. Yeah, but logic isn't what drives us. Fear drives us. <laughs> right. So you look at the difference, for example, in spending on breast versus pancreatic that you noted, right? Mm -hmm. That's an emotional issue, and it should be, and I respect those emotions. I can't say they're wrong or they're irrational because everybody feels them as an individual, and they're right to, and they're entitled to, and in the context of their own lives, everybody's choice should be their own. But if you step back as a policy question and look at the impact on society, there is no question that the fear causes harm by itself. And we have to recognize that so we can add that to the conversation about how we as a society make healthcare policy. Right. I think the, 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 the phrase here we're discussing or the problem here we're discussing is statistics do not account for the individual. I mean that's 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 sort of the rub here. Um, let me just relative to your policy prescriptions uh, or combating cancer phobia, you make an argument for, and we touched upon this active surveillance or watchful waiting. Um, you you, I, I think you're genuine when you say eliminate the c word. Um, so for example, relative to uh, uh, DCIS, uh, there are other ways of phrasing. Uh, what that diagnosis is that avoids, or I think appropriately avoids, avoids the C uh, word. You recommend sc uh, changing screening uh, protocols, better screening. You make a note, a somewhat brief note about uh, technology of liquid biopsies. Um, if you were to make, if you were to note, say, one or two of these that you would think be the most productive and, say, more readily or easily adopted, what would you recommend? I think there are two things that have to happen. And there's one you mentioned and one that you didn't. So let me start with the one that okay. you didn't. One of the suggestions that I make is that um, communications to people who are making choices about cancer, particularly in my book, I only really deal with the choices about whether to screen and how to deal with the diagnosis of a low-risk cancer. This is an important qualification to make. The emotions involved in all of the other choices about cancer how to save my life when I have a stage four lung or pancreatic. Those are way beyond my book. Mm -hmm. I don't go near them. I touch only on should I screen and um, what do I do with the diagnosis of a cancer that the doctor tells me is a low-risk, non-threatening, overdiagnosed cancer. So in the case of screening, we absolutely must come to a more modern understanding of Screening can do good, but most screening doesn't do much good. Mammography saves two women per, hundred, per, per, per thousand screened over 10 years. Right. It saves so few women compared to the harms that it does that we discussed earlier that expert panels in Sweden and France and the Cochrane Review, among others, have suggested phasing out mammography because the net harm outweighs the net benefit. 
Well, imagine you can't do that, right, because of the emotional reasons. Mm -hmm. But those what the numbers say. If, however, society understood the minimal benefit and the harms, discussed them all on the same table, we would ultimately come to more thoughtful choices. That's the first step. Add a full discussion of the minimal benefits and the harms of screening to the information that people have as individuals when they decide whether I should screen, right? Mm -hmm. They don't know about the harms. They don't know the benefit is minimal. They just think it'll give me a sense of control over a scary disease that once I get it, I can't do anything about, and control makes fear go down. And I believe in screening because we all believe in screening because they haven't been educated about Screening has taught us that it has minimal benefit in most cases, and this is true, of, even more true of PSA. It's even true of colonoscopies and sigmoidoscopies. Um, and if so, if we knew all of that and we had all that information on the table, we could make more intelligent choices as people for our own health and as a society. And then the second one I think that could do the most good, and there's evidence about this, is to take the word or reference to cancer out of conditions that are only cancer under a microscope, but would not go on to harm the individual or have a very, very low chance of harming the individual. And the evidence for this is they've done this with thyroid cancer. They have done exactly that. A Dr. Yuri Nikiforov and others have championed a change of diagnostic language for the most common form of thyroid cancer, and they've taken the word carcinoma out and replaced it with neoplasia, which satisfies the medical people because that describes cells that are fakakta, as we would say in Yiddish, you know, not normal, okay? And fewer people now diagnosed with a disease that doesn't have the C word in it are asking for thyroidectomies because they're not afraid because they don't have the C word in their, oh my God, what should I do? So they've done that with thyroid cancer and they were able to because they had decades of history that showed treatment or no treatment outcomes are the same. So they had the hard evidence, okay? Now, let's go to prostate cancer. We haven't taken the word cancer out of the slow growth cancers, but because there is a rating system called the Gleason scale, that can give you a fairly accurate prognosis of what your cancer is going to do. Patients are given that Gleason number, and we needn't go into the details of them, but when they hear that they're low on the Gleason scale, that's scientific information in addition to the cancer word that can go into their thinking. In addition, in addition, we also have the evidence in prostate cancer treatment that with the slow-growing, small, isolated, in-situ sorts of cancers, outcomes are the same, treatment or no treatment. So in prostate cancer, doctors can, by law, if you will, you know, by what's officially sanctioned, prescribe either watchful waiting, just come back in six months and we'll run your PSA test again, or active surveillance, come back in six months and we'll do another biopsy. So that's treatment, but it's only a diagnostic treatment instead of cut it out or right. radiate it out. Now, let's move on, however. Breast cancer, 
where the same thing has been recommended by many, many medical experts. Let's take the C word out of ductal carcinoma in C2, especially the low and medium grades. They don't yet, the people in the breast cancer care community who are extraordinarily conservative about wanting to save every life they can, yay, that's heroic, are not yet convinced of the evidence enough that treatment or not has the same outcome to officially sanction even recommending watchful waiting to their patients. Some do informally. Doctors do informally. But you can't officially because the breast cancer world is not yet convinced of treat or no treat, same outcomes. There are three studies underway, uh, randomized clinical trials, Comet and Lord and Loris, they all have these names, um, that are trying to study that. They're having trouble getting people, women to sign up because the form says, sign up for this study and we may put you in the group that gets treatment and we may put you in the group that gets none. No women want to sign up for the none. Right. So short of that randomized control trial data to convince the medical community in, in breast cancer, they cannot officially give a diag- uh, not a diagnosis, a uh, treatment regimen that includes watchful waiting or active surveillance, uh, a more aggressive form of watchful waiting. Um, they suggest it to patients, many doctors do, but officially the recommendation of treatment for that disease is cut it out. That's all. That's all. That's all. And then maybe radiation to follow. Um, if it didn't have the C word in it, <laughs> I'm not sure that that wouldn't change. Right? right? That you have a form of stage zero cancer or precancer or neoplasia or indolent lesion of suspicious origin is one of the diagnoses languages they're talking about. And in those cases, watchful waiting and active surveillance would probably be a more okay thing to suggest to women, right? You can't get sued for recommending it and all of that. And more women would be saved. More women would be saved if we got the scary C word out of the diagnoses of diseases that are highly unlikely to ever harm them. Thank you again. I'll just note, uh, you said uh, over a 10-year period, uh, two breast cancer deaths per 1,000 screen. This is That's for ages 60 to 69, but as your book goes on to state further, for the age group 50 to 59, it's just 0.8, not 2.1. And for 39 to 49, it's 0.4 of those aged 39 to 49, um, breast cancer would be fatal. So uh, mammography screening, per again, your point, um, the benefits... Really minimal value. Minimal value, Surprisingly yes. minimal, minimal value, value. Yes. Especially for, especially for women 40 to 49, which makes the current recommendation now to change the screening starting date to 40. Uh, interesting because the USPF weighs risks and benefit, uh, benefits and harms. And the harms for women 40 to 49 are all of these things we've been discussing, right? The false positives, the infections from biopsies, the treatments that they don't need. Those harms are still there. And the efficacy of mammography for women 40 to 49 is still the same. It's 0.4 women saved for every thousand screened over 10 10 years. Yes. It's it's de minimis. It's practically gone. It's probably not there. The harms clearly outweigh the benefits, but there's a lot of emotional 
and political and medical pressure on the USPSTF, and I have no doubt that that helped inform their recent recommended change. Okay, David, we're at we're sadly at our time, uh, but genuinely uh, important and interesting conversation uh, about uh, about this subject. So I appreciate your unpacking uh, the book again. Uh, Curing Cancer Phobia, How Risk, Fear, and Worry Mislead Us by Hopkins. So I wish you every success with it, and thank you again for this discussion. Thank you very much. If we can come to a more modern emotional relationship with the emperor of all maladies, we'll be the better for it. Right. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.